0: This morning, we are continuing our teaching series called No Perfect People Allowed, focusing on the reality that the church is meant to be a place for imperfect people, although for a long time, the church has tried to put up this posture of being better or holier or superior. In fact, that is never the way Jesus intended the church to function or to uh, be structured. And so we're trying to take a look at stories of Jesus interacting with less-than-perfect people and seeing how he embraces them and calls them to change the way they're living. This morning is a a bit of a different story from kind of the ones we've been looking at, but it's one of my favorite stories in all of the New Testament. And I love it because there's such rich um, context to it, such rich historical context to it. So if historical context is exciting to you, this is going to be your stuff. If historical context is not all that exciting to you, just stick with me through some of the boring parts and you'll get to the end. Because what we see in the end is that Jesus has a pretty clear picture for what he wants the church to be. Uh, and so, in this, in this story, what we see is uh, the reality of imperfect faith. And it's the story of Peter famously and boldly declaring that Jesus is the Messiah followed by him telling Jesus that no, he couldn't go die on the cross, and Jesus having to first tell him that God had revealed mysteries to him, and then having to say to him, get behind me, Satan. And yet Peter still becomes this key player in the church. And so even a, perf- a person of such imperfect faith that Jesus could refer to him as Satan is included in this reality and is part of the building up of the church. So... If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, if you don't have one and want to follow along, there's a couple copies on the back table, or feel free to just listen. Uh, the story will tell itself. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. This is what Matthew writes. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, the Son of Man is a uh, a phrase that Jesus often used to refer to himself. And they replied, some say, you're John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And still others say, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, There was some belief in that day that there would be resurrected realities of these great Old Testament prophets. And that would be a sign of the coming kingdom of God. And Jesus says, okay, that's fine, but what... About you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. We'll stop right there. So Peter has this moment of breakthrough. This great moment of giving the right answer in class. In fact, the central answer of the whole reality says you are the Messiah. And when he says this, it carries all kinds of, uh, of Jewish reality in that day and age. Uh, the, the Jewish people longed for and looked for what they called a Messiah. One who would come out of the lineage of the great King David and who would restore through God's power and blessing, the kingdom of Israel to its uh, past kind of glory. And they long for this to happen again. And, And so whenever the word Messiah is used in that culture, that's what they're looking for. They're not looking for what we understand Messiah to be sort of in evangelical modern day culture, like a spiritual savior. That's important. But this is not what Peter is confessing when he says this. He says, you're the guy. You're the one who God has sent who's going to restore all of this stuff for Israel. You're going to make it how it was supposed to be. And we can't forget the second part of his powerful statement because it has all kinds of meaning. He said, you are the son of the living God. And you have to understand where Peter is saying this to really get at what's going on. Remember in the beginning verse of this this section, it says, They were entering into Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi might mean nothing to you, but this was a place that the disciples would have understood deeply, had all kinds of history that was not kind of subject to the living God. So, for instance, in Genesis chapter 6, there's this crazy story about the Nephilim. Did Anyone ever hear this story? The Nephilim descend from heaven... And the Jewish people believed they were like demonic beings, and they they interdwelt with humanity, and they created this kind of this kind of reality of evil that that spread across the the whole world. Well, the Jewish people believed from their writings that the Nephilim descended from what was called Mount Hermon, and Caesarea Philippi sits at the base of Mount Hermon. Right, so here you have this very beginning sense of evil descending into the world and spreading. All throughout the world. Not only that, but that region in ancient days, as as history continued to push forward, was ruled by a king named Og, right? What a great name. OG is his name. Og was a horrible king. Uh, He was kind of he he ruled along with this other king, Sihon, these these edge parts uh, of what is now modern-day Israel. And as the Jewish people were coming up out of exile in Egypt. They tried to negotiate with these two kings and just let them pass through so they could enter into the land that God promised. But instead of allowing that, the kings attacked Israel and there was this horrific battle and all of these these terrible things happened and the Israelites were able to to defeat these two kings, which was miraculous. But in many ways, this, this area was seen as this kind of rebellion, this against God kind of reality. And then later on into the history of Israel, there was a king named Jeroboam, and he was not a good king. And Jeroboam actually led the people into worshiping the idol Baal, Baal, right there in that area. He actually set up altars to Baal and led the people of Israel into this way of living. we we'll fast forward all the way into the, the times that, the, that this story is happening, And you have now on the history of all these things, this new city called Caesarea Philippi. It was a pretty recent construction project. In fact, it was done by Herod and then later finalized by Philip after Herod's death, therefore Philippi. Philip wanted everyone to know that this Caesarea was built by Philip, right? That's what Caesarea Philippi means. And it was dedicated to Caesar, right? It was dedicated to Caesar, so much so that they built a temple to Caesar right there, to Caesar Augustus right there. Now, do you have any idea what the Romans referred to Caesar Augustus as? He was called the Son of God. Did you know that? This language in the New Testament, the Son of God comes from, it comes from responding to the to the, to the Greek the Greco-Roman reality of the day. Caesar, Julius Caesar, had become a god, and then every emperor who came after him was the son of God. And there was this new kind of empire cult worshiping the powers that be in the section. And here was a temple in that place to what the Romans called the son of God. And here, what Peter says, you are the son of the living God. He's saying, I see all this mess here in this city. I see all this history of opposition to God. I see, I see it, it, in my present view a temple to what the, the, the pagan people of the day call the Son of God. And what I'm saying about you is that you are what they aren't. You are the reality of everything that they're looking for and, and going in all the wrong directions to find. Jesus, or excuse me, Peter is making a bold statement in dangerous space. Caesarea Philippi was kind of up along the northern border of Israel, and so there was all kinds, I was always kind of things happening into it that would pull it away from Judaism. Here's what I liken it to. If you're not a sports fan, forgive me. If you're a Cowboys fan, forgive me. I won't forgive you, right? Yeah, here we go. It's like Caesarea Philippi is like the experience of being an Eagles fan, living in the greater Philadelphia area, and encountering Cowboys fans who live here. It doesn't make any sense, right? And yet they're infiltrating the area. Or maybe this is better for you. It's like the lantern flies, right? Caesarea Philippi is the reality. Have you experienced the lantern flies yet? Some of you have millions of them in your backyard. They're huge. They're weird. They're gross. I'm against anything that flies except... An eagle, right? We've been through this before. This is how, this is this is my stance on winged winged animals and insects. And lantern flies are particularly repulsive, and yet they're in there. And so to, to, to say these things to be funny, but like for Peter and the disciples, that's what they would have felt like about Caesarea Philippi. This is supposed to be part of our land, and this is what it looks like. Does it make sense? And Peter says, "You are the Messiah. You're the Son." of the living god. And in it we see this sort of bold offensive offensive assertive statements. And then Jesus says something fascinating to him. He says, "Blessed are you, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven." And in saying that, Jesus is beginning to alert even Peter to the fact that Peter might not understand everything that he's just said, right? He thinks he knows what he's talking about. And yet Jesus wants him to know that even this correct answer wasn't something he conjured up on his own. It was something that God had revealed to him. And he's beginning to set the stage for a deeper understanding that the problem in the world isn't just a bunch of bad actors out there, It's the deeper reality of evil and death that is controlling our world. And Jesus is about to speak directly to it. And then he makes two incredible statements, right? He says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And then he says, and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. We need to pause and think about these two statements. In fact, his first statement, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, has in some ways divided his church because different sects of the church have interpreted it very differently and it has led to all kinds of different structures of the church. Here are the two common ways that this is interpreted. And if you know anything about me, I'm going to suggest to you there's a third way, which is better than the first two ways, right? And I'll let you decide. The first way that this is often interpreted is that Jesus is saying that he's going to build his church on Peter, right? Right? Now what your Bible may tell you there is that the word Peter actually is Petras, it means stone. And the word he says for rock is Petra. And so he's doing this play on words, on you Petra, or you are Petras, and on this Petra I will build my church. And so many have interpreted this to mean that Jesus is saying he's going to build his church on Peter. That Peter's going to be a key player in this whole thing. Uh, This is a typical Catholic interpretation of this church. Uh, In many ways, this is where the the Catholic faith looks to and affirms the role of the papacy in the church. That kind of goes on in the next verses that Jesus gives authority to bind on earth and loose on earth, and it will happen in heaven. And while this does a good job at sort of getting at this play on words that Jesus is doing, it misses the point in a couple of ways. The key way being, that it belittles the ministry of Jesus, then who is Jesus in this whole mess, right? If Peter's the big player in the mess, then who? Mess is the wrong word. Peter's the, the big player in the church, then mess is maybe the good word, right? We're talking about the church after all. If Peter is the big player in all this, then what is the role of Jesus? Just to announce that Peter's in charge of it? That doesn't really make sense with anything else we see or read there. And it also doesn't account for the fact that he chose two very different yet similar words for stone. Petras means little stone. It's the stone you would pick up by the shore and throw so it could kind of skip on the shore. Petra is like a giant rocky crag or cliff. Like no one is lifting this or moving it or throwing it. And so they're two similar and yet very different things. And so to simply say that Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my church on that and that these are the two similar things I think is to is to jump a little bit too far there so first interpretation build a church on Peter the second interpretation is the typical Protestant interpretation it says well it's not built on Peter but it's built on Peter's confession of who Jesus is so Jesus is kind of making this illusion but what he's really saying is hey Yes, the fact that you have identified me as the Messiah and the son of the living God, it's that foundation upon which the church is built. And that's fine, but there's really two problems with this interpretation too. The first is it's mostly a reactionary interpretation. Well, we don't want it to be Peter, so we better figure out something else that it can be, right? And the second is that it does nothing to justify the literary connection that Jesus is making between Peter, the stone, and the rock that this is being built on. What I want to suggest to you is there's something else that's really at play here, and for us to understand it, we have to first understand why on earth does he make the second statement that he makes? The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This is dynamic language. What is going on here? Is he drawing spiritual connections? Of course he is, but he's also drawing geographic connections. In Caesarea Philippi, there was, uh, at the bottom of Mount Hermon, a giant cave, almost like a grotto, was called the Grotto of Pan. Pan was the god sort of of, let me summarize it this way, it's a bit of too much of a summary, but it's funny. He's the god of goat fertility, right? So this is the easiest way. There's more to it than that, but that was one of the things that he did. He assured that the goats could reproduce. And so they built a temple to him. And so there's a big temple to him right there at this grotto. And Josephus says that at this grotto, Josephus was a great Jewish historian of the day, well-respected, used in modern, uh, modern research to this day, said that the waters would rush out of this cave, and it's rushed so hard that it actually was kind of the source of the Jordan River. And he said that the waters inside the cave were so deep that they were referred to, listen to this, as the abyss. You hear that language sometimes in the New Testament, right? And every so often the people would make a sacrifice to the god Pan to assure that the goats could have babies. And and they would sacrifice and they would send the goat down into the abyss. And if blood returned out into the springs that pushed back out, That would be symbolic to them that the God had not received their sacrifice. So, this is constantly going on right here in this setting that Jesus and Peter are having this exchange at. Do you know what they called this place? They called it the Gates of Hades. They believed that it was the entrance to the underworld. And you go all the way back into the Old Testament and you even find that the Jewish people refer to that general area as, quote, the gates of Sheol. Sheol being the Jewish word that replaces the Greek word Hades. Right? And so Jesus knows exactly what he's doing, is completely in tune to the geographic surroundings of the area, sees this city and all of its sort of corruption and, and history of evil, sees these These temples, first to a god of Pan, and second to the Roman emperor, and this place that's called sort of the, the, not sort of, that's called the Gates of Hades. And oh, by the way, right there where this happens is a giant rocky cliff carved into the side, all these niches of sort of pictures or, or sculptures of idols all across it. Here's what I think's going on, church. Jesus says, right here, I'm building my church on that rock. And he says, in the gates of Hades will not prevail against it because I'm building it right on top of it. And You say, well, what about Peter? He's the little stone, Petras to Petra. Well, Peter even understands this because when Peter writes later on, he says, oh, by the way, everyone who reads this, you are being built into God's holy building. As what? Living stones. Peter absolutely was a stone. He was part of the building project on top of the rock. Paul says that the apostles and the prophets were the foundation. Why? Because they were the first stones. But who was important? Jesus was the cornerstone. It's Jesus who lays the first piece of foundation symbolically on this rock that is kind of the corruptness and evil of the world, Jesus is making a bold statement that says, on top of this, I'll build my church. Now often this passage is interpreted to say, Jesus is going to build his church. You don't have to worry about hell and Satan and demons and evil and all these things because they might try to attack you, but Jesus won't let the gates of hell cannot prevail against you. That's good theology, but a wrong interpretation, right? Because when's the last time you were attacked by a gate? Did that ever happen to you? Does someone in battle ever, I'm not going with a sword, I'm not going with a gun, I'm going to go with a gate, right? This is my weapon of choice for this battle at hand, right? A gate is the opposite. A gate is a defensive structure. Jesus is not talking about defense, he's talking about offense. Do you see it? He's saying, I will build my church right here in this place that seems so far gone from me, and no one can stop me. Do you see it? And 2,000 some years later, we look and say, "Uh uh-huh, exactly. Now, does that not mean there's resistance? Does that not mean there's not things that come against? Of course not. But the project is not done. It's why Jesus, or why Peter says, you are living stones You and me, we're being built into this structure that eventually will prevail and the world will be as God intended it to be. This is a fascinating statement about Jesus' intent for the church. Not to be this kind of esoteric religious reality off to the side that's just kind of twiddling our thumbs waiting for when Jesus comes back and changes things, but instead to be assertively being present in the broken world we live in and part of what Jesus is building as symbolic to the true living God and not the one that the world keeps saying it in many different ways. Do you see it? And Peter at this point must think, yes, right? And then this is what happens Jesus begins to give the battle plans. Now, if you've ever been a leader in any situation, and as a leader in the church, let me just say, even a leader in the church, you can say, here's the mission, and most people are on board with the mission. And when you announce the strategy, not everyone's on board with the strategy, right? Peter is on board with the mission. He does not like Jesus' strategy. Right? So here we go. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. So once this decisive action happens, Jesus says, from this time, or Matthew writes, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the laws, and that he must be, listen to this, killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Now, before we get into Peter's reality here, this does not compute with anything Jesus has just said to the mind of someone like Peter, right? We said Peter's saying, okay, here's the one that God has sent. He's going to get rid of the Romans who are ruining things for us. He's going to get rid of all the temples to the idols who are ruining things for us. He's going he's to clear out the whole space. He's going to reclaim it for God, and we're going to establish something here. He's going to do it by power, right? Because that's how you do it. And Jesus says, actually, the battle plan is I'm going to suffer. And I'm going to die. And a dead Messiah is a false Messiah to someone like Peter. Why? Why? Because Peter doesn't understand the greater issue at hand. He only sees the tangible realities of the broken world. He doesn't understand the greater realities of evil and death at work, not just in the world, but check this, also in his life. And so Peter says, let's get his words exactly here, Peter took him aside. This is fascinating, right? Now, again, Jesus is is human, so it's it's a human interaction here. Jesus takes him aside. He's just called him the son of the living God, and and Jesus says, this is what I'm going to do, and then Peter says, "Well, wait, wait. He takes him aside, right? He doesn't want to confront him publicly, and he says, never. This will never happen to you. He's basically saying, stop lying to me. I, and, and even more importantly, I won't let this happen. And Jesus pretty famously says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. The word stumbling block is like a trap that was used to catch animals, right? Jesus basically says to Peter, you're trying to trap me. You're putting me in a box. You're not understanding the huge thing that I've come to do. The big victory that I'm trying to win over evil and death itself. And he calls him Satan. Now, you know what it's like to get a really hard question right in class, right? You put your hand up, and you're, yeah, I think this is right, and you say it, and the teacher's like, whoa, I was surprised you even knew that. That's fantastic. We didn't even go over that yet. And you knew that, right? And you're the star student. So you're feeling really good. So when the second question comes, your hand goes up again. And then the teacher says, get behind me, Satan. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> what just happened, right? Right? And Peter's having this moment of like, oh my goodness. But see, for Jesus, this situation was no different than when he was being tempted by Satan himself in the wilderness. Satan was doing the exact same thing to him that Peter now was doing to him, yet unknowingly. Saying, there's other ways than the cross to get this done. You can take it by force. Someone can give you all of these things. And yet Jesus knew for his victory to truly be undeterred by the gates of Hades, the reality actually was much more dire, as it were, or heroic, as you might say. See, Peter would continue to not get it, right? Because later on, even after this moment of Jesus calling him Satan... Later on, when they're praying in the garden, Jesus is praying in the garden. He's about to be arrested. You remember this? And um, Peter falls asleep as he's trying to take, keep guard of Jesus. And the people come to arrest him. Do you remember? And Peter does what? He takes out a sword, right? And he cuts a guy's ear off, which is weird again. I'm not sure what's going on there. He's a Van Gogh moment. You know, I, I did hear one interpreter once say I like this there's no way to prove this was like he was still sleepy he didn't have his aim right he just got the guys ear. maybe I don't know but we still see that he doesn't get it he doesn't get it he doesn't understand what Jesus has to do he's still trying to take it by force and Jesus has to correct his mistake in a miraculous way even in that moment Because Peter is only seeing things through a human, tangible mind. And Jesus has identified the problem for what it truly is. And whereas God revealed to Peter that Jesus was the Messiah, it was Satan who revealed to Peter that Jesus didn't need to die for the the evil and sins of the world. My suggestion would be that Peter probably didn't understand that he was part of the problem, not part of the solution. Yet he saw his religious purity and his good intentions as the means by which to conquer the pervasive issue of evil and death in our world. And Jesus rejected a posture of power and instead adopted a posture of sacrifice and of service. How would he build his church on top of that rock? And how would the gates of Hades not prevail against him? Because he would be the sacrifice that was dumped into the pit of Hades, into the abyss. And the blood would not run back out Instead, as Paul would write to the Ephesians, Jesus himself would lead captive a host of captives, conquering death through his sacrifice, and therefore rightly able to say to the people of Caesarea Philippi and to a struggling religious dude named Peter, the gates of Hades cannot prevail against what I am doing. Jesus subverted evil by doing good and on the cross won a great and final victory that enables death to not have the final say in our world. It enables us not to have to Kind of errantly wander around trying to find meaning and identity in life. And instead be able to find it in the son of the living God. There's three things I think we can take from this amongst many. And it was really hard for me to summarize all that that way. So if you want more historical nerdery, let's hang out this week and I'll give you a lot more. Three things that we can take from this kind of on on face value. The first is that we can be certain that Jesus is building his church in this world, right? You might say, well, of course. Well, there's two really important things we take from this. The first is that humanity is not the problem, right? Many of us, especially from the, the ivory towers, of the church, look around and say, look at all these bad people out there. We just need to get rid of these bad people or kind of steamroll these bad people and the good stuff can be set up. And Jesus says, no, no. It's not the people of Caesarea Philippi that are the problem. It's the presence of evil and death in our world that is ringing in their ears, leading them astray. Oh, by the way, Peter, you hear it just as loud and clear as they do. Right? Right? And in the same way, Jesus' plan is not some grand escape mission for the church. We just kind of wait over here for a little while, and then we go away. And Jesus so Jesus didn't say, listen, if you just hold on long enough, I'm going to build my church in heaven. He didn't say that, did he? I'm not dismissing the reality of heaven and the glory of heaven. I'm just telling you Jesus' plan is here. Now and in the future. And the effort to build the church now is an eternal thing into the future. Jesus is building his church in this world. Second thing is that Jesus is building this church, his church with people of imperfect faith. right? Jesus at one hand says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And then he lets him hang out with him the rest of the time. He lets him disown him three times, right? let lets him screw up by cutting the guy's ear off. lets him disown him three times. And then he still does become this key leader in the church, right? He still does preach this incredible sermon at Pentecost because God revealed it to him, not Satan, right? He still does do all these miraculous healings because God enabled it. And Peter finally, over time, begins to fully understand the bigger issue at play, and friends, this is good news if you're anything like me. Because a lot of times, I think I've got God figured out. And I'm just as much wrong as I am right. And God still says, you're one of my living stones. You're in this. I'm working through you, your mess-ups, and your glorious mountaintop moments. You're in. I love you. You're included in this. Jesus Though calling Peter Satan never dismissed him from his presence. Think about this. And yet embraced him. Ate meals with him. Loved him. In moments was going to take him to be one of the three people who would experience the transfiguration. This grand moment of seeing the glory of God through Jesus. This is good news for people like us. And then the third thing is that Jesus builds his church through a continued call to take up your cross. We won't take time to read it, but the next section of scripture here basically says, if anyone wants to follow me, he must take up his cross and come after me. What on earth is Jesus saying here? Again, this has been interpreted a million different ways. But if you understand the context of what's going on, Jesus says, If you want to be part of this, yes, assertive mission, I will build my church and nothing will prevail against it, you will not take a posture of power. Instead, you will take a posture of service. Paul writes to the Philippians that at the right time, Jesus was lifted up and and every knee would bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, the Son of the living God, But before He could be lifted up in that way, He was lifted up on a cross. And it wasn't until people can fully understand what He did on the cross that they could bow before Him as Lord. Jesus is saying, you're not physically probably going to end up on a cross. You're not going to die for the sins of the world. But you do in My name have a commission to subvert evil with good. To instead of just sitting in church on Sunday and saying all these bad things are happening around there, to start going and being a living stone that is erecting the temple of the living God in the face of evil. Jesus says, I will build my church on that rock at Caesarea Philippi. Can I tell you what else he might say? I am building my church on top of domestic abuse. I'm building my church on top of systemic racism. I'm building my church on top of sex trafficking. I'm building my church on top of injustice, on top of poverty, on top of evil, on top of idolatry, on top of strife, on top of all of these things. I'm building my church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. He's not telling you to not worry about their attacks. He's telling you to attack not the people, and not from a position of power, lest we believe if we elect the right people, we can legislate some kind of Christian utopia, but instead from a posture of sacrifice and service that walks into the mess to announce redemption for the mess. This is the church. This is what Jesus has done. And this is what he calls us to imperfect in faith as we may be. Can I pray with you?